You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, good morning. Glad that uh, we can have so many here in our two buildings. Also thankful for those that are able to join from home and uh, continue to gather and study and learn more about God through his word, even from a distance. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Amos. The book of Amos is where we will be today. Uh, For those that maybe haven't been with us, we have started a series on the minor prophets. Uh, We started just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we looked at the book of Hosea two weeks ago, and uh, we really were able to answer the question, what is love? Because we see a picture of God's love through the life of Hosea, right? We said that Hosea's love for his unfaithful bride pictures God's steadfast love through Jesus to redeem and renew unfaithful man to him. And so uh, that picture that God calls Hosea to work out, to live out with his bride, uh, is a picture of our relationship to God and what he does for us. Last week, we looked at uh, the book of Joel, and we answered, who can endure God's wrath? We saw the concept of the day of the Lord, day of the Lord being these specific times in history when God appears in a powerful way to confront evil and to save his people, right? So there's this a two-headed piece to the day of the Lord. One, he shows up to deal with evil, and by dealing with evil, he is saving his people in the midst of that. And so we talked last week about the, these disruptive circumstances, um, ways that God steps into human history and begins to work and to move. Because what we saw in Joel is that there's this immediate day of the Lord that's happening with the locust plague, There's an imminent day of the Lord that may happen with this dark army that's going to come and wreak havoc upon them. And then this future day of the Lord, right, when Jesus comes back and and the nations are dealt with and judged. And so we see kind of this progression of judgment that's happening, right? And so we talked last week about how disruptive circumstances give us necessary reason to pause and to examine our life with the goal being to repent of sin and to return to God in faithfulness as we look towards the coming day of the Lord. And so what we were saying last week is that because, um, because the, the, the locust plague comes, there's this idea that um, the Israelites need to pause and reflect and repent because God's threatening future judgment, right? There's more judgment to come if you don't get things right now. And so I challenged us last week. I said, I think we need to look at disruptive circumstances in our life, both when that happens individually, when that happens nationally, and even globally. When things occur, we're going to be real guarded and careful about saying God is doing this and he's doing it towards this group of people or this sin activity. But we are going to say, man, God's causing us to to have opportunity to pause and reflect and and to hear his voice and to see if he is saying something specifically to us, right? And so we need to take advantage of that. Um, so I challenged you last week, examine yourselves in the midst of disruptive circumstances. And then we talked about being on the right side of the roar on the day of the Lord, right? In uh, the book of Joel, where it talks about at the very end uh, on that day where, where God is roaring like a lion, right? He is roaring towards his enemies. The picture, though, is that God's people are with him. Because as we saw in the book of Hosea, when God roars, his people come, right? And so we talked about how we come through the gospel, we answer his call to come and to serve him so that on that great day of the Lord, we are on the right side of the roar, right? When he roars in judgment now towards his enemies, okay? So that brings us to the book of Amos, our third in our series of the Minor Prophets. And so we're gonna take a look at uh, the book of Amos today. Hopefully you're enjoying our study. I know I'm learning a ton. Again, um, some of the reasons that we are, are looking at the prophets, we'll go over here in just a minute. Uh, but let's jump right into our summary sentence for today. We're answering the question, does God care? Does God care? And our summary sentence is, as God's image bearers, we are to mirror his character by upholding what is right. We'll call that righteousness. And when evil creeps in, taking action to make things right, once again, this concept of justice in our society. As God's image bearers, we are, we are to mirror his character by upholding what is right, and when evil creeps in, taking action to make things right once again in our society. And so we're going to see these themes of righteousness and justice uh, for us here in the book of Amos. 
It was a big part of Amos's message to the northern kingdom of Israel. For our kids, God wants us to do what is right to others all the time. God wants us to do what is right to others all the time. Day of the Lord concept continues in the book of Amos. Specifically, last week we saw kind of a a generalized day of the Lord. There was a piece that would apply to Judah, but then this focus turned to day of the Lord on, on the world, basically. In this passage, in this book, day of the Lord is being focused specifically on the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel, right? Um, I'm, I, again, I'm thankful that we were able to talk about what it means to be born in the image of God prior to this study, because I think so much of what is contained in these minor prophets is, is tied back to that concept of us being image bearers of God. Uh, one, that we are to understand God's character through the minor prophets, and then we're to be those type of people. But then two, how we treat others as image bearers of God is such an important theme through these minor prophets as well, okay? So that concept of image bearing uh, value applied to every human being is so important for us really understanding and mastering the the message of the minor prophets, okay? Um, Again, kind of looking through why we study the minor prophets. We want the Bible to be approachable, all of it, right? You as, a, as an individual church member here, I wanna help make the Bible approachable for you. And so what I've been challenging you to do is not necessarily study in advance of the book that we're gonna be in, but to post-study the book that we study on a Sunday. I'm trying to give you a foundation to where it's not as confusing, not as overwhelming. Uh, we kind of lay that foundation on Sunday and then you've got the remainder of the week to kind of go back and read through it and study it and it becomes more approachable to you, right? We wanna gain a greater picture of God's love in the Minor Prophets, and we want to see Jesus in the Old Testament, and we'll continue that approach today. Again, some of those main ideas, sovereignty of God, holiness of God, love of God, and those certainly reign uh, supreme once again as we look at the book of Amos, okay? A lot to, lot to see here today. Um, Amos is a great man of God. He is self-identified as a shepherd and a sycamore fig tree farmer in uh, chapter 7, verse 14. The reason that comes up is because he is being challenged by one of Israel's professional prophets, right? This guy kind of shows up and, and is critiquing and rebuking Amos's message to, to Israel and basically wants him to shut up, like just stop talking, like quit with your message. And that's where Amos kind of steps in and says, look, I'm just a shepherd. I'm just a sycamore fig tree farmer, but God has called me with this message, right? It's a, it's a reminder to us that's, that God loves to use people who are underqualified from the sake of the, the world standards, right? We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29, how God will use the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, right? And so he certainly does that with Amos, um, calls Amos, who is a guy who lives in the southern kingdom of Judah, but he is called to, <coughs> to journey north to the northern kingdom of Israel, and he will proclaim his message at Bethel, which had become their place of worship since Jerusalem fell in the southern kingdom. Um, Jer- Jeroboam II is ruling. He was also ruling in our discussion on Hosea. 760 to 750 BC is probably when the events of this book takes place. Remember, this is a time of earthly prosperity where Jeroboam has expanded the, the borders. Things are going great uh, from the, the humanistic standpoint of Israel's uh, present history at that time, right? But what Amos draws us to see is that Jeroboam's not a good king because he is leading the nation in a state of apathy, idol worship, but significantly in the area of injustice and neglect towards the poor, towards the oppressed, towards the afflicted in their society. So Amos comes out and brings this message to kind of rebuke um, Rebuke the nation of Israel. He's got a powerful message this morning uh, of justice and righteousness. And um, Amos is, is a guy uh, who, um, man, I've already started thinking about how if, if the Lord blesses us with another child, with another boy, like this is the name of our next boy right here. It's Amos, right? Coming right alongside Asher and Abram and Apollos. Um, I, I want our family to remember what Amos has to say because Amos has such an important message that I think is so important for us to carry out hundreds of years later, right? Thousands of years later, we need to be carrying out this message 
as, as though we are hearing it for the very first time like the Israelites did when he came preaching to them, okay? Um, what we see as kind of the big indictment against the northern king is found in Amos chapter 2. So if you want to flip over to the second chapter of Amos, we're going to be all over the book again today as we have been with the other minor prophets, but we'll try to lay out a good understanding for you. But the book begins with kind of a message towards some of the surrounding nations, right? God is critiquing them for their mistreatment of others. Then he comes to Judah and addresses some of Judah's behavior. So if you're, a, if you're part of the northern kingdom of Israel, you're, you're loving this message so far, right? Like you're, you're hearing from Amos, and Amos is like, these guys are doing this wrong, these guys are doing this wrong. Hey, and your, 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 your fellow brothers uh, who used to be a part of this big group of Israel that's kind of split off and they're the southern kingdom of Judah, man, they're guilty of some stuff too. So you're kind of sitting there and you're like, I love this guy, Amos. Man, he's got a great message. He, he's hating on everybody around us. But really all he's done is build this argument to show why Israel's activity, Israel's behavior is so much worse than their neighbors. It's so much worse than their neighbors. And so in Amos chapter two, verse six, he turns his attention to Israel and it says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down besides every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. The idea that Amos is portraying here is that They were mistreating others around them, particularly the poor, particularly the poor, and even those who were uh, characterized as the righteous, right? Those who maybe weren't going along with the idol worship, weren't going along with the, the sinful behavior and activity of this prosperous time, right? They are undervaluing and mistreating those around them. It's, it's interesting um, because if you don't have a working knowledge of some of the things that God puts in his law, then this stuff doesn't stand out to you as, you know, why would God care about this? Because look what it says in verse eight. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. So you have this picture of them being around the altar on sitting on garments or laying on garments, holding on to garments that have been given as a form of a pledge. Well, why is that wrong? Why is that a big deal? If you go back to Exodus Chapter 22, verse 25. Now remember, context, God brings his people out of Egypt. They've been there for 400 plus years. And he wants them to be radically different than their experience there, right? They have been mistreated themselves by by Egyptians, by the Pharaoh. God says, you're going to be a different type of nation, right? Like I, I, I put you in an incubator there in Egypt so you could grow into a nation. Now you're a nation and we're going to be different. We're going to be a light to the other nations, right? And so he's giving them instructions about how they're to operate differently. And in Exodus 22, verse 25, look what he says about how you treat the poor. And let's back up. We'll back up and read verse 21 because it's not just about the poor. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not, let, you shall not be like a money lender to him. And you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 12. This this same idea is reiterated here. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. 
You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Why do I read that to you? Because what I want you to see is that in the book of Amos, he is addressing behavior that God has already told the people not to be a part of. He's also warned them that these people are so important to me, these fatherless, these widows, these poor, they're so important to me. If they cry out, I will hear their cry and I will respond with justice. And then he tells the people, if you will do what is right towards them, it's considered righteousness, right? Like this is what righteousness looks like. It's to do right towards these people, right? And Israel's guilty of not doing these things. They're exploiting them, taking advantage of them. And here's the problem here. No one's on edge. No one's concerned about their behavior. Why? Because everything seems to be going great in Israel. It's a prosperous time. They are are prospering. Even though they're spiritually bankrupt, they are prospering on the outside. Territory is expanding. Economy is going great. Right? No concerns, no issues. Amos shows up and char- starts bringing this warning of judgment, and everybody's kind of like, we're not, re- we're not really concerned about this, bud. Like, we don't feel like anything's off kilter because God seems to be letting everything go well for us right now. They can't imagine that they're doing anything wrong. In fact, Amos at one point in the book addresses the fact that they are almost championing or calling for day of the Lord to happen because they think it just means a greater blessing for them. And God has to step in and rebuke them and says, why do you want day of the Lord? Like if the day of the Lord comes, it comes on you. You're the evil that needs to be addressed. Amos even warns them, or Amos alludes to the fact that some of what God warns about gets fulfilled <clears throat> in a short period of time. Look at Amos chapter 1. Verse one, he gives us the context of the timing here. It says, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. We don't know a whole lot about this earthquake. We do know know that it is mentioned again in Zechariah chapter 14, verse five. It has already happened. Zechariah refers to it back to as a time of judgment. All right, and so Amos obviously writes this book after the earthquake because he references it as a past tense thing as well. But what he is showing here is that, man, God's judgment does come to be. God warns about him stepping into human history, creating disruptive circumstances as day of the Lord, and God does carry through with that. We read in the past about their relationship to Egypt, how God wants them to be different. That is alluded to also in this book. Um, their time in Egypt, remember when they're leaving Egypt, they, they, they have what's called Passover, right? And it's called Passover because the death angel comes through and does what? Passes over them because the blood is spread on the doors, right? Um, and, and you're thankful as an Israelite that night, right? Because the Egyptians are seeing their firstborn killed in the night. God is passing through their cities, their towns, Right, but he's passing over Israel. But look at the language that Amos uses in this passage uh, or in this book to warn Israel. Amos chapter five, verse 17. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing, those who are skilled in lamentation. In all vineyards, there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst. Pass through your midst. Amos chapter seven, verse eight. Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. Amos chapter 8, verse 2. He said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. What God is saying here is that he is done passing over, done passing by his people. He will not pass by them. He will now pass through them in judgment, all right? And so it's important for us to see that, that God had warned them, God had prepared them, God had given an instruction to them, they had ignored it, they're mistreating others around them, and now he's ready to bring judgment upon them. All right, let me give you a quick overview of the, the book, outline-wise, and then we'll jump right into some application and be done. Chapters one and two, 
Amos brings a message to the nations first and then to Israel. Accusations come against all these people, against um, their injustices. And Israel's, again, is viewed as worse. Why? Because they have special revelation about what they were supposed to be doing, right? Everybody's held accountable for their actions. Israel's held more accountable. The poor are being ignored. Injustices are being tolerated. Um, Chapters one and two talk about the poor being sold into debt slavery. They're being denied representation. Um, Amos, again, compares their situation to Israel's plot in Egypt. He's basically telling them, you know how this feels. How dare you act the same way? How dare you act the way the Egyptians acted towards you? You were supposed to be different. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Chapters one and two, the message is brought to Israel to make them aware of how they have violated God's covenant. Chapters three through six, the message comes again to Israel, specifically to her leaders. Um, There's an allusion in Amos chapter three to this idea of them being called out to be separate all the way back when God calls Abraham. Look what it says in Amos chapter three, verse two. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Right, going back to Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham and says, you're gonna be my people. You're gonna be the father of this nation that I'm gonna put together and you're gonna be a blessing to others, right? Israel was supposed to be a blessing to others, but look what it says. I will punish you for all your iniquities. This punishment's coming because they failed to be a blessing. God gave them a great calling, gave them great responsibility, and now great consequences come for not carrying it out. Throughout these chapters in chapter three through six, talks about the people attending religious gatherings. They make sacrifices, but they don't care about others. They ignore or abuse the poor. They neglect injustice that's happening around them. Another Important section, Amos chapter 5, verse 10. They hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, you exact taxes of grain from him. You've built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards. You shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, who turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. What are they doing? Man, they are so consumed with money and wealth and what is good for them that everybody else is kind of a tool that they use to get the wealth that they want, right? They're selling the needy. They're exploiting the poor. They're taking bribes, right? Money is more important than justice. Money is more important than what is right, Right? They're completely engulfed in the, in the treasures of this world to the point that they are not imaging God well. And God tells them he hates their worship because it's disconnected from how they treat others. Our relationship with God should transform our relationship with others. True worship should spawn a, an attitude of justice and rightness in us. The problem, and, and again, this kind of requires some knowledge of their idolatry. Why, why did Israel... Uh, fall into this trap of, of not caring for righteousness, not caring for justice? How did, they, how did they move and shift in that direction? Well, if you look at the, the, the stories they tell about their gods, right, the, the idols that they're worshiping, their character is not very good, right? These gods that they construct, these gods that they make, they've made them in the image of man, right? Like if I'm a man, and I create something, the best I can do is create it in my image. And so as mankind begins to make up gods, they make up gods that are very much like man. And so you look at the character of these idols that they worship. These gods don't value justice. They don't value righteousness. So what does that mean for the men that follow these gods? There's not a high, high standard of character for the man now. 
right? And so the Israelites are kind of living in this image of, of the gods they've created, and these gods don't care about justice. They don't care about righteousness. And God warns them and says, I'm going to send a nation to punish you. Amos chapter 3, verse 11. I overthrow some of you. Um, wait, Amos 3, 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you. Your strongholds shall be plundered. Amos chapter 6, verse 14. For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. They shall oppress you from Lebahamath to the brook of the Arabah. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Assyrian empire that's going to come in, that's going to come in and conquer Israel, right? And so God is forewarning them that a nation is coming to, to stop their behavior because they won't stop it themselves, right? Look how he describes it in Amos chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Right? It's, it's, it's typically not viewed as a good thing to call females cows, right? Like we would, we would never want to err on the side of doing that. Why does Amos do that here? Well, in this, sign, in this day and age, it was a sign of prosperity, right? Like, the, like these, these prosperous, wealthy, filled women he turns his attention to here. He says, I'm talking to you now, right? Look what he says that he's going to do. The Lord your God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast into harmon, declares the Lord. What's the imagery here? For those of you that like to fish, and, and boy, do I like to fish, and I can't wait to get to the beach next week because there will be some fishing that takes place, right? For those of you that like to fish, you know that sensation when, you're, when your bait is in the, in the water, your line is cast, and the fish, you can feel the fish take it, and you can feel the fish thinking that he has achieved safety, and you can feel that fish start leaving, right? Typically starts going to deeper water, and you can feel your line start to stretch. And if you have your drag set right, it might even take some line with it. And your heart starts to beat and you're like, oh boy, I'm about to set this hook. And what happens when you, hit, when you set the hook? Well, you completely turn that fish to an about face, right? That hook sets, mm, gets it in his mouth and changes his trajectory, right? Like he was going this direction, boom, you set the hook and it's like, eh, like now we're going in a different direction right? You're coming this way, and we are going to eat you, right? Like, that is the plan. That is the mission, right? That's the picture that Amos gives here, right? Like, these cows of Bashan, like, they are going in this direction of prosperity. How? They are achieving it because they are exploiting the poor. They are oppressing the needy, right? They are not caring for the needs of those around them. They are heading towards deep waters, and God says, I am going to send a fisherman with a fish hook who is going to redirect you because you won't redirect yourself, Right? If left to yourself, you will continue to go to deep waters and do your own thing, and I'm going to set the hook, and I'm going to turn you back to me, is the picture here. The Assyrian army is coming to do this. And we've talked about how God, God even in, in his mercy, sends the Assyrian army to do this, right? Like it's a form of judgment, but it is also a form of mercy that he will not leave us to ourselves. He will not leave his people to their sins. Then we come to chapter 7 through 9. We see visions about Israel's demise and judgment, how this will continue to lead to their, um, their demise. Uh, four visions are seen that are symbolic of the day of the Lord. There's a locust swarm, a scorching fire. Uh, Israel is pictured as overripe fruit for the picking. They also see a picture of the temple crumbling in Bethel. There's also a really alarming passage in chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. A famine is predicted, but not your typical famine where there's a lack of food. Look what it says. <clears throat> Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. What an unbelievable type famine that is for God to just stop speaking, for God to just stop, God, stop directing, right? 
This, this is probably an allusion to what comes shortly after the prophetic times where there's this big time gap where God doesn't speak, right? And we have this intertestamental period where we've got Old Testament, New Testament, and like uh, hundreds of years in between where God's just not speaking. There is no divine writing that takes place because Israel has, has given themselves over to sin. And God says, I'm gonna send a famine where I don't speak to you. But what's so encouraging, as we oftentimes see in God's word, right, we see all this stuff about sin and their failures. But as we sang this morning, what is it? That where our sins are many, right, his mercy is more. And we see that at the end of Amos. In chapter 9, verse 11, in that day after he has decimated Israel, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I give, have given to them, says the Lord your God." You see this time of restoration being promised. He's going to destroy Israel, but he's going to rebuild it. He's going to do, through, do it through the messianic king. And what's, what's fantastic here, what, what makes this not just Israel's history, right, but applies to us in the New Testament, is that he talks about other nations being grafted into this, right? Look what it says. He's talking about this possession of the land, this rebuilding. And look what it says. All the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who do this, will get to be a part of this. You say, well, are you reading too much into that? Like, um, are, are you making that just sound good for, uh, for us because we're not Israelites? Well, no, because I see it in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, verse 16 through 18, the Jerusalem council is gathered and, and Gentiles are starting to get saved and they're kind of confused by this because they, they weren't expecting Gentiles to be part of God's people. And look what it says. Paul and Barnabas are reporting about this. After they had finished speaking, look what James says. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. He's quoting from Amos here, right? James steps up and says, why are we confused about this? Like, this is exactly what our Old Testament prophets said would happen. That God's gonna do this type of work that's gonna include not just the Jews, but all nations that he calls, all nations that respond to his roaring, Right? This hope is contained for us in Amos that while God sees our sin, God judges sin, that he's always a merciful and gracious God that can forgive sin too. So this question here, does God care? Does God care about evil and suffering? Does God care about poverty and malnourishment? Does God care about the sexually abused? Does God care about corrupt leaders? Does God care about bad judges? Right? I've had enough conversations with Daniel and Rob and Kevin McMurray, who's one of our missionaries overseas right now, who have worked in the legal system. I've had enough stories from them to know that even in our best attempts to be a nation that upholds justice, there is corruptness in our justice. Right? We have corrupt people, sinful people who sit on, uh, on the, um, the chairs of the, of the courtroom, who make bad decisions, who can be bought with a bribe. Right? We, we, we have this taking place. And the, the question that can be asked is, does God care about any of this? And the message that rings true in this book is that he absolutely cares and he will absolutely respond to it. All right, let me give you some points of application for us and we'll be done. Number one, understand that God cares greatly about how we treat others. And I want you to see that in this book and I hope you'll take some time to read through it because it's, a, it's, a, it's nine chapters, so we've tried to hit in, in multiple places to give you some context of, of the message of Amos, but obviously we've left out a ton here in this, in this book. Read through it this week, and I want you to see that God cares greatly about how we treat others. He cares greatly about it. For our kids, we are called to treat others like God treats us. 
We're called to treat others like God treats us. He cares greatly about how we treat others. Number one, he gives attention to those who are abused and mistreated. And look again how it's pictured. This isn't some passing interest of God. This isn't something that he rarely thinks about. Look how it's pictured in Amos chapter one, verse two. This is Amos talking. He said, the Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. Hopefully we've seen over the last three weeks that, man, God is a lion who roars about the things that he cares about, right? He cares about his people and he will roar to the ends of the earth to bring them to salvation. He cares about justice, right? He roars in Joel. He roars in Joel towards justice and punishment. He's roaring again here in Amos for justice and punishment. And so this message that Amos brings is packaged in this picture of him roaring like a lion. And he is roaring for the needy. He is roaring for the poor. He is roaring for the abused. He is roaring for those who who get the injustice of our system at times. He is roaring for these people. He's not silent. He's not quiet. He's not dismissive. He is roaring for these people because he cares for them. He gives attention to those who are abused and mistreated. Number two, he condemns cruelty against other humans. Why? Because they are all created in his image. The fact that Amos addresses how other nations are treating other nations has nothing to do with God's people, has nothing to do with the Israelites. And yet Amos's message speaks to these nations and how they're abusing each other. What does that tell us? That all human beings are created in his image that the whole world is valuable and accountable to him. Man, it helps us to see that special revelation isn't needed to know that you have to treat others respectfully. The law in our hearts gives us a basis for how we're to treat others. How do we know that? Because God holds other people accountable who don't have his word, who aren't his people who don't have the advantage that Paul talks about in Romans, that the Israelites had the oracles of God. They had the Deuteronomies. They had the Leviticuses. They had the Exoduses that told them how to act, right? But the nations that don't, they're still held accountable because they have this law in their heart that says, I shouldn't treat you that way. I shouldn't exploit you. I shouldn't take advantage of you. I shouldn't use you for my personal gain. Understand that God cares greatly about how we treat others. Number two, listen up for his instructions and respond appropriately. Listen up for his instructions and respond appropriately. For our kids, listen to God and do what he says. That's the expectation that's given to us in Amos chapter three. Look what's said in Amos chapter three, verse one. God is roaring his plans and expects us to respond in fearful obedience. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Again, that, 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 that reminder, you were there under these type of people. You're supposed to be different, right? You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Verse three, he gives a list of rhetorical questions where the answer is no to all of them, right? Do two people walk together unless they have agreed to meet? No. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? No. Does a bird fall in the snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? No. Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? No. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? No. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The answer is no. Right? These many small days of the Lord are meant to draw our attention to God. Verse seven, for the Lord God has done nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. God lets us know how his plan works, right? He didn't keep Israel veiled about his expectations for how to treat others. He told them when, they, when he brought them out of Egypt, right? God doesn't keep us veiled as how we're to act right now either. He's told us how we're to treat each other. He's told us how we're to act and he's told us the consequences if we don't. Verse eight, the lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? What's the, what's the implication there? God has spoken. Are we going to listen? Are we going to fear him? Are we going to do something with what he has said to us? He's roaring. Are we listening? We can be thankful that God does reveal his plans, right? He gives us these expectations. He tells us the consequences. We can be thankful for that. God doesn't veil himself. He reveals his plan. 
so that we know what to do. Part of that plan is we don't need to neglect others' misfortune in the midst of our comfort. Do not neglect others' misfortune in the midst of your comfort. Amos chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, to those who feel secure on the mountains of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Calne and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great. Then go down to the Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall know now be the first of those who go into exile and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. What's the message there? Man, don't get so comfortable like the Israelites were here where God doesn't seemingly be, he's not seemingly passing any judgment. He's not correcting any behavior and think that that therefore means the behavior is okay. He says, man, don't, don't think that in your comfort, there's nothing going on around you that needs to be addressed. Don't miss it. They were guilty of lounging and not caring. We must be careful to assume that a lack of immediate retribution does not mean that no retribution is coming. Number four, respond to smaller disruptive circumstances in your life. When God's trying to get our attention, we need to listen for his instructions and respond appropriately. Look what it says in Amos chapter four, verse six. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. These are two things that character God. They're casting them away. Justice and righteousness, we don't care about it. He who made the Pilates in Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the night into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name. This is who God is. And look what he has done for them in Amos chapter four, verse six. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. He says, I brought, I brought a type of famine upon you, a small famine, but it didn't generate the result that I was hoping for, that I was longing for, the, 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 the response that I was giving you the chance to have, and that was repentance. He says, you didn't, you didn't repent. You didn't return to me. Verse seven, I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and on the field which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blithe and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. If you read Deuteronomy, and I'll just, I'll just list these for you. You can look at them on your own. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 22 verse 38 through 40, verse 27, and verse 60. Deuteronomy 28, verse 22, 38 through 40, 27, and 60. Amos 410, he says, I sent among you pestilence after the manner of Egypt. You look up those verses in Deuteronomy, they are all warnings that say, if you don't do what I tell you to do, I'm going to send locusts, I'm going to send mildew, I'm going to send the plagues that I gave to Egypt upon you. God's, God's doing what he said he was going to do. And he's done it, and there's no repentance. Remember when we saw in Revelation time and time again where God would bring these plagues and bowls and, and trumpets, and the response of the, the bulk of the people on the earth was, we hate you, we're not turning to you, right? Like what we see is God's judgment and the, the critic the, the skeptic looks at that and says, man, how can you call that a loving God, right? And the believer says, how can you not, right? Like his, his, he just keeps delaying ultimate judgment. He keeps giving opportunity for repentance, right? The expectation here is that Israel could turn their hearts back to him time and time again, but they don't. The challenge to us as believers is that when we have these disruptive circumstances to turn our heart to God. Then number three, image God well by being known for righteousness, justice, and mercy. Image God well by being known for righteousness, justice, 
and mercy. Because that's how God is depicted here in this passage. And what's awesome, and the timing was completely random for us, certainly not random for God, is that in our D group study for this month in Psalm 103, man, the same message is there that's found here in Amos. Because how's God described in, in Psalm 103? He is described as a lover of justice, one, one who works for righteousness and justice, right? Who, who is a merciful and gracious God. Man, I encourage you to, to read through Psalm 103 again. Um, if you're the guys and you've already had your group, for the women that are coming up this week, man, helps, you know, take some time to see how it overlaps with Amos. And I'm going to show you here in a minute how it does. Um, number one, he is a God who upholds, the right, who upholds righteousness. This is who God is. He is an upholder of righteousness. Amos chapter 9, verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob declares the Lord. It says his eyes are on the sin, right? He knows about it. He's informed about it. And he will act against it. But you see his mercy attached there too, right? He's not going to utterly destroy the house of Jacob. He is going to rebuild it. But he is an upholder of righteousness. Number two, he is a God who will fight for righteousness with justice. God loves righteousness. And it goes back to our summary sentence. We are to mirror his character by upholding that same righteousness. Uphold what is right, but when evil creeps in, we take action to make things right once again, right? The justice piece. So God loves righteousness when his people or when people aren't acting righteously, he will fight for righteousness with justice. Psalm 103, our D group passage, look what it says in verse six. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Right, this Psalm of David, he is describing the same God as the God of Amos, a God who is righteous and a God who will work for righteousness and work for justice towards those who are oppressed. He won't forget the sins of those who fear him, right? We see that in Psalm 103, but he will remember the sins of those who don't fear him. In Amos chapter 8, verse 7, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds, right? The man or woman who remains in a position of defiance towards God, not fearing him, God says, I'll remember your stuff and I'll deal with it. What do we see in Psalm 103? Those who fear me, I don't remember your sins. Far as the east is from the west, I forget about them. Right? For those who fear me. He is a God who will fight for righteousness with justice. Number three, he is a God who accompanies his justice with mercy towards those who fear him. Right? He's a God of judgment. He's a God of wrath. But man, his mercy is all over it. Psalm 103, verse 3. Who forgives all your iniquity? Verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Those who respond to the roar rightly, God forgives. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. How do we see his slowness to anger in Amos? Well, in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, he describes Israel as ripened fruit. You know what takes time for fruit to ripen? Time. Time. You have to wait for fruit to get ripe, right? The picture there, if we don't miss it, is God has waited. He has delayed his judgment. Israel has ripened in their evil. The only reason they're allowed to ripen in their evil is because God's slow to anger. He's slow to anger. He's tolerant due to his kindness towards repentance. I told you Assyria's coming to, to bring judgment. You know how long it takes for Assyria to show up from the time that Amos declares it? Like 40 years. 40 years. Those of you that are over 40, and I'm not quite yet over 40 yet, so that's not me. Um, but those of you that are over 40, can you imagine being told something 40 years ago? Hey, this is gonna happen. And you still caring about it 40 years later? Right? You'd be like, oh, I'm so glad that didn't ever happen. Right? 40 years later, God brings judgment with Assyria. Why? Because it's 40 more years of opportunity for repentance. 40 more years for them to repent. He doesn't deal with us according to our iniquities, right? We see that in Psalm 103. He doesn't deal with us according to our iniquities. In Amos chapter 7, verse 2 and 3 and 5 and 6. 
there's a prediction of locusts and fire. And you know what God says after each one of those, after Amos cries out and, and asks God not to do it? He says that he won't do it. He won't deal with the people according to their iniquities like they deserve because he is a merciful, gracious God who is slow to anger. This is who he is. He's known for righteousness, justice, and mercy, which means, number four, as image bearers of God, we must be committed to the same type of righteousness and justice as well. Look what he says in Amos chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. Amos chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. This is the part that applies to us because we've seen who God is. He cares about people. Look what he says. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Verse 24. And this is is kind of the imagery I want to leave you with. This is the type of people that we're supposed to be. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's to be the type of people we are. To mirror his justice and righteousness displays his glory. We're to be known as people who hate evil, who love good, who establish justice, and we do so to the extreme that it is like flowing waters in our community in our context, in our house, at our job, in our neighborhood, in our hobbies, in our, in our extended families. We are to be people who are known for righteousness and justice. We are to be that stream that brings those qualities to our environments. If, if we're to image God well, and I challenged our D group when we read Psalm 103, man, there's so much there about God and who he is. And I, and I told our guys, I said, what's convicting is I'm supposed to be that type of person. If I'm, if, I'm, if, I'm a bear, if I'm an image bearer of God, to mirror him, you know what my wife and my kids need to see from me is that I am slow to anger and that I am merciful and gracious and that I work righteousness and justice. Man, don't miss that. When you read Psalm 103, praise him for who he is. Don't forget his benefits like it says, but don't also miss what you're supposed to be in light of what he is in Psalm 103. I'm supposed to mirror that in my interaction with other people. That's how, I, that's how I image him well, as I, as I take his character and I make it known in my relationships. And we're to make righteousness known. We're to make justice known, which means we do what's right, we value what's right, we uphold what's right, and when things stop being right, we work to make it right again. We work to make it right again. All right, we're gonna break up into some groups to finish off today. Our questions for application So we'll let Tyson handle the the group that's online. Ben's going to handle our group over here. And we'll kind of talk in here to kind of wrap up today. Um, If we're called to be people of righteousness and justice, what types of things are we to be involved in to develop that reputation? How do we we become known as people of righteousness and justice? Then number two, what types of injustices do we see around us today towards others? And how might we work to fix those injustices? All right. How do we become known as people of righteousness and justice? And how do we help fix things for those who are maybe experiencing injustices today? Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.